The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit straightening your bananas and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 415 with guest Aslam Khan, recorded live Monday, January 26, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who went bungee jumping and sprained his coccyx, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. Hey, Richard. Hey, sir. How are you? I'm well. Uh, as you know, I'm, I'm here in New London, Connecticut, halfway between Boston and New York on the eastern part of the United States of America. Richard is in Vancouver, British Columbia today. Uh, Richard, we, uh, we haven't done an intro together in a long time. Oh, no kidding. We almost took the, the quarter off. The, the fall season was so frantic, it was almost impossible to be in the same place at the same time. Well, and you with your house turned upside down, discombobulated and everything going on in the studio. It just did, uh, you know, it was difficult yeah we're one of the nice things about this renovation they're hanging drywall today actually and they're being very quiet at the moment is that we're finally going to put a proper sound booth into my house so this problem will end uh that'd be cool you're going to get one like we have at the at pop studios yep the same basic design i've had new cable more wire laid to support that some some XLR cable and all that. So yeah, give me another month. It'll be up and running. Awesome. We should also mention we have um, some new shows coming up here, a series that we're doing for MSDN called Development in a Downturn, which is all about, um, you know, surviving the economic crisis, if you want to call it that, or the recession or whatever you want to call it. This downturn has affected a lot of us um, in some ways differently than others. So I, I totally agree. It's been an interesting conversation with some of these, uh, folks that have been around long enough to remember other recessions besides the dot-com bust. But we basically have 10 shows put together. That'll be available at MSTN online soon enough. We don't have a URL yet. We'll let you know about that. But now, Richard, let's get into Better Know a Framework. <laughs> And for those that don't know, this is a little segment that I do 
Uh, I used to do it every week, and I'm going to start doing it every week again, where I just shine a little flashlight on some dark corner of the .NET framework. Maybe you've heard about certain classes or namespaces before, but don't really know what they do. That's what I'm going to do. And of course, this isn't training. This is for you to go investigate further on your own. So what do you got for me, sir? So today I'm going to talk about, I'm going to go back to some of the basics, the system uh, component model namespace. And in the component model namespace is where we talk about components. And components are, uh, components are rich objects that have some UI properties built into them, and they have the, the dispose pattern built into them. So what I'm going to talk about today is the, uh, the container class which is the default implementation for the iContainer interface. Now, you may have seen containers before, and containers are objects that encapsulate and track zero or more components. In other words, they can just be a container without containing anything. But don't think about containers like as, for, as a UI container, like a, like a control that can contain other controls. I mean, that's a nice concept, but it's not necessarily all about UI. It's just about containing other components. So in this context, containment, and I'm reading from the, from the docs here, containment refers to logical containment, not visual containment. You can use components and containers in a variety of scenarios, including scenarios that are both visual and not visual. So I think I've hammered that home. The components in a container are tracked in a first-in, first-out list, which also defines the order of the components within the container. Added components are appended to the end of the list. So, you know, if you want to find a components container, there's a container property, and that will give you access to that container. Um, you, can, you can do this to find the form that a control is sitting on, okay? You can cast it to a, to a form if you know it's a form, and there you have it. Right. So look it up, iContainer interface and the container class in system.componentModel. So, Richard, you have an email. I do indeed, sir. Let me re pull it up here for you. And this one, I got a good chuckle from for an obvious reason here. Uh, he referring to show 410, which was uh, the last show we did with uh, Uncle Bob over in Ordev. Yeah. And uh, his opening line says it all. I was listening to your show with Uncle Bob, and I had to respond since you picked on me directly. <laughs> I'm educated as a chemist, <laughs> and I've been programming for over 25 years. So, for those who don't make the call back there... I pointed out to Uncle Bob that uh, my experience, most developers I've met were trained in something else. They're things like chemical engineers, and lo and behold, a chemical engineer has rung us up. <laughs> Back when I was looking at what to do for a career, I thought that the little single board computers looked interesting, and hardware and software would be a fun thing to learn. Schools were a bit behind, as usual. The computer departments thought microcomputers were toys, and mainframe COBOL was the only true language. Yeah! And the engineering departments were still playing with transistors and vacuum tubes. This right. is dating yourself, sir. That's what you're doing I know. here. That's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> the physical sciences were actually trying to hook up these newfangled micros to the real world and doing fun things with them. So I went into chemistry so I could play with computers. I ended up getting a PhD, and my dissertation was mostly about building the computer and writing the software to do things that couldn't be done by any other way. But my passion was, and still is, computer programming. I programmed everything from systems used to control process plants to line of business applications. I try to stay current, even reading a few of Uncle Bob's books. I figure if you quit learning, you start dying, and I still have a few processor cycles left in me, although things hurts 
H-E-R-T-Z, more than <laughs> oh, they used to. Oh, man, that's uh, bad. Thanks, and keep up the great shows. Donnie Grande. Donnie, bad pun. No all mug I, for you. All I got to say is, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we better send that fellow a mug. That's a great story. Thanks so much for sending an email. And if, if you've got questions, concerns, shows you'd like to hear, uh, commentary on anything we've done, including Better Know a Framework, yep. send us an email, .net rocks at franklins.net. Okay, Richard. Let's introduce our guest today. Our guest is Aslam Khan. Aslam has over 18 years of professional experience covering software architecture and development using design patterns, agile methodologies, and various static and dynamic programming languages. He works intimately by coaching development teams to design and build sustainable, low-maintenance enterprise applications by focusing on team agility, simplicity over complexity, and by taking the fundamental position that design is more valuable than a technology. He holds the philosophy that successful architectures and enterprise applications can be achieved if one immerses themselves completely in the business domain of the enterprise. With a degree in electronic engineering, Aslam believes that software architects must be able to build what they draw and still finds room in every engagement to practice his craft of software development. Awesome is architecture and design coach at Factor 10, factor10.com, and looks after Factor 10 interests in South Africa. He's a regular writer in various technical forums and speaker at local and international events and is a dzone.com editor for the Architecture Zone, which is architects.dzone.com. You can read his blog at oslamkhan.net. That's A-S-L-A-M-K-H-A-N.net. Now, Oslam, you're from South Africa, but you're currently in a hotel room in Austria. Is that right? Absolutely. And uh, if you started minusing the 18 years and you go back, then I'm kind of like the chemical engineer working with the transistors. I did electronic <laughs> engineering. <laughs> I, I, I'm amazed at how many elect- electrical engineers especially go into computers. So I had resistors and capacitors and uh, transistors, and I thought programming would be a really fun thing to do. So I think there's more of us out there than you think. So anyway. Well, and I I think the engineering mindset serves us well in in software development. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I'd hire an engineer any day over over computer scientists. Engineers know how to solve problems there, I think. Yeah, don't hire a musician. <laughs> oh, you get the creative stuff. It just but, it just won't deliver on time, but you get the creative. That's right. You miss it sometimes a little too creative. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a completely amazing design. It does everything you want, but it took three times longer to All right, thought. please don't email me with hate mail. I'm a musician. I'm self-deprecating. I don't really believe that musicians are horrible programmers. Come on now. Come on. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Just a little joke, people. All right. What do you call a bass player who broke up with his girlfriend? Homeless. Very nice. There you go. What'd the drummer get on his SATs? What? Drool. Excellent. All right. Never mind. (laughs) Never mind. Wait, wait, wait. One more. Way more. How do you get a guitar player to turn down and play less? How? Put some music in front of him. (laughs) Okay, and that's it. (laughs) Now we need engineer jokes. Oh, well. That's, you, but, you guys so you're right. I'm, I'm from Cape Town, uh, sunny Cape Town at the tip of Africa. Uh-huh. Uh, and at the moment, I'm sitting in freezing Lech, or Lech. I don't know how they pronounce it here in Austria, in the Austrian Alps. 
um, here for the week uh, for a software architecture workshop that was originally convened by Jimmy Nielsen about four or five years ago. Okay. Third one I've been to. So it's going to be a fun week. So that explains your interest in domain-driven design, I guess. Um, yes, I'm a late adopter, I should say, not, uh-huh. not an early adopter. But uh, it, it has its place, and I've been having some fun with it recently. But I think the, the thing that, we, that Eric Evans talks about the least in his book is about modularity. There's just a couple of pages of it in his book. And the rest is about design and patterns and things. And uh, so, so modularity modu- is is a is a passion of yours? No, it isn't a pattern. It's just a term that I've put down to to address an area of architecture which I think is deceptively difficult. Okay. Uh, in 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 a lot of applications and and businesses and teams that you walk into and you ask someone, so where's this code? They say, oh, we've got a module for that. Or sometimes they call it a component. Mm-hmm. or they'll find some other thing that refers to an aggregate of things. Okay. And they generally, they talk about a module, right? So when I ask, so how did you come up with this module? There isn't any single consistent answer. There aren't any rules about how you create modules in any way whatsoever. And so it becomes an understated challenge. It's really, really difficult. So one of the things I like to put down is that, so how do you define a module? What is a module? Mm. And uh, there isn't any, any rules about how you create modules. Right. right. So many people say, oh, but we've got layers, right? Yeah, sure, we've got layers, you know. That's a separation of concerns of sorts. We've got the UI, we've got presentation, we've got MVC pattern, MVP patterns. Um, and layers are just one way of creating modules, right? Mm-hmm. But how do you break up a really complex problem space into something that you can manage? I take a very, very simple view of modules. The module is just one of a set of parts that you can use all together to construct a complex structure. Right? So if you take all these things that you've created and partitioned into little bits and pieces, there should be some way that we could connect them and make up something that is a complete, complex structure, kind of like putting a car together. Right? right, and different methodologies have been created around that whole process of starting with a blank slate. You know, where, where do you start? How do you break it down? And there's Well, the... that's, that's, that's the complex part, and right. that is why it is so deceptively complex. Because if you take an existing system, it is really, really easy to break it down. You could use functional analysis, you can use uh, subsystem boundaries, you can use sources and sinks of data... You can do whatever you want, whatever you decide to use to, to, to break it down, you can. But if you've got a blank page or a blank whiteboard, where do you start? You really don't know where to start. Okay. But um, the one way I like to think about it is that you should be able to write a little story about part of the problem. Now, the reason why we want to have modules in the first place is that in large, complex spaces, I don't think, well, my mind isn't large enough to try to understand it in one go. So we try to fragment, we break it up into tiny pieces, and we try to understand each little piece. And uh, once we understand each little piece, you know, the light gets a little bit brighter. Eventually we get this, 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 this euphoric moment. It's an aha moment or, wow, I now understand this domain, you know. Yeah. But I, typically I have that moment halfway through the development process. Exactly. Right, and you have this thing, and you say, "Wow, right now I get it." So that's exactly what they were talking about all this time. You know? So, 
you have you get filled with all this excitement and and you forge ahead with that. And I think it's at that moment in time that we start making mistakes. Is it because that we need to see something and get the big picture before we can start breaking it down? Is that why it happens halfway during the pro? Isn't that what prototyping is all about? That's what prototyping is all about. But you need to have some little idea of your domain, and you may be completely wrong, right? Yeah. But I think we need. I think what many people, especially in large organizations, when you say the word prototype or a spike. Mm-hmm. or a little test thing that you're doing, mm-hmm. guaranteed some business person, project manager, someone high up at the food chain is going to say, well, that's great, let's put it in production. Yeah. But it was just a little exercise. It was just a little test of what you weren't thinking about. you know. Right. And suddenly all these prototypes are starting to go into, into, into production. Yeah, that was the visual basic know. syndrome, right? Yeah, it was. Yes, mm-hmm. it was. You know, And so the other thing that we call these prototypes a proof of concept, which by definition we should just throw away once we've, once we've proved a little concept and then do the real thing. But uh, it yeah. doesn't really work like that in reality. So when we talk about modules and we talk about agility, right, and we talk about the whole big design up front, the BDAF stuff, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, big design up front is, is almost a cardinal sin in agility these days. You just cannot tell anybody, no, 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 we don't design up front. We're doing everything incremental or iterative or sprints or whatever you want to call it. We all say, no, no, we don't do big design up front. But I think when you start breaking down a large problem space into pieces, you're creating modules, and you're immediately starting to do big design up front. And that's one of the big obstructions to that. And a lot of the understanding the decomposition that we do is for conceptual reasons, just to understand it. But it doesn't really lead into proper sound architectural components that we can then put together. And that's what, that's what makes it so difficult. So what we need is a way to visualize the big picture and the domain without actually creating something that runs the risk of turning into the product. Exactly. So what, what I like to do is that I like to take each little part that we then decide we're going to focus on I like to write a little story about it, you know, just a few sentences. And it should be co- absolutely complete. It should describe it completely, right? And, and that's a great starting point because we haven't made any design decisions yet. We said, we now understand this little piece, and now we understand this little piece, and it has its own story. And what we want to do is try to find what the touch points are between them without having to have one story bleed completely into the other and say, oh, maybe these two should be together. Or maybe they're actually the same thing. We don't want to abstract too early. We just want to describe the story in non-technical terms. Identify what depends on each other. Right. So what what we're essentially doing is that from a domain perspective, from understanding the problem, we're actually building up a dependency graph. Right? So there's this graph of what depends on each other in order to exist. It can't exist on its own. It exists in the context or in relation to the other things. Now, once you've, once you've established that, then it becomes a little bit easier to start working out designs of each of, behind each story. And essentially what you're going to do when you start designing behind each story, you're creating APIs for those little components. And those little parts become modules. Now, Aslam, when you say stories, do you mean literally you're writing 
uh, a story about the about using the software? Is it about the user experience of the software? What they what the user wants from this? From this? No, we're going to write a story about the problem, about the domain. Okay. So, for example, if I'm in, uh, let's try something I've been doing recently in in short term insurance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if I want to calculate the insurance for a house and it's next to a river and it gets floods every two years, then I want to describe it. I want to, I want to describe the risks around that. So I'll say that uh, in order to calculate the price, we need to take external environmental factors into, into, into account and each environmental factor will have a different risk uh, uh, criteria attached to it. So that's a little story. It describes something around that, right? Okay. So it's 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 purely it's purely in in business terms. Okay. It does not describe a user experience in any way whatsoever. Okay. Okay. So w- w- once you have an idea of of the the domain by talking about the stories behind each part, and you know how they relate to each other, mm-hmm. then we can start designing into those stories, right? And the moment we have this, this, this dependency graph of sorts, the moment we discover more about the problem domain, and we realize that some of our assumptions uh, about dependencies between parts are actually incorrect, then we're in a better position because we're effectively then going to adjust the dependency graph, which is a lot easier than trying to prune source code trees. Right. Okay. Because if you go back to what we talked about a little just a few minutes ago about uh, prototyping, and that and that leads into uh, into already far down into development, then then what we're going to have is a set of source code lying somewhere, right? And it already has some structure sitting in some version control repository. And if you've ever experienced trying to move code around in large code repositories, it hurts. Yes, it, it is, does. It is, it's really, really painful. You know. So what do you do? You branch out and you give someone the horrible task of trying to fix that, and you think that's going to be easier. But the moment you've got to merge back into the trunk, you're going to pay. So you're going to pay for that at some point in time. But if we start... Uh, designing little pieces around stories, then we can start keeping those into little smaller uh, source trees on our version control system. And we can start designing APIs around the stories. So what we're essentially doing is that we're changing the granularity of our design. Okay? Because normally we're designing down at class level. Mm -hmm. So when we design at modules, we're starting to design at a granularity that's a little bit higher than that. Mm-hmm. So we're talking uh, about groups of classes here. Do those classes actually have to be interconnected, like one is a collection of the other, that sort of thing? No, what, we, what we're talking about is that you have, for, for, each little, for each little module that you're going to create, for each little story, you're going to have a design around that. All right? So if I go back to the insurance one, you're going to have a, a building class because it's, it's a building that you're having that you're going to insure. You're going to have a, a pricing component or pricing class of sorts. You're going to have a, a risk ratio. So all those belong to this particular story. 
Would you equate these stories to use cases? At a very simplistic level, it will be use cases. Inside each story or behind each story, you're going to have, you're going to have proper use cases if you're using use case analysis. Right. Or you're going to have uh, BDD stories, right? The, the as, as I, uh, behavior-driven. Yes, behavior-driven stories. So inside or behind each little business story, there are these, these, these other stories. Whether you're comfortable using use cases, XP-style stories, or something that describes features behind each of the business stories. So the whole idea here is to get some early feedback from people who understand the business a lot, the business or domain experts. Then you get feedback by asking them, does this story make sense? And, and if they confirm that for you, then you can start using whatever analysis you want for that mm-hmm. particular story. Mm-hmm. And then you start dropping into object-oriented design properly, right? Yeah. Um, but then we have the issue of how do we expose each module, right? So like a class at that low level has a public and a private interface, and we only want to expose the public contracts and the messages it can receive, then each module should behave in exactly the same way. It should expose its public interface. So generally, you're going to put an API around it of sorts, and you're going to expose it via the API. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. You probably know that about 50% of the code in most enterprise applications is dedicated to data access, and about 90% of the bugs and performance bottlenecks come from this code, too. That's why developers rely on Object Relational Mapping Tools, or ORM for short, like the Telerik Open Access ORM. It can help you build a persistent data layer in no time and squeeze out every bit of performance possible. Do you prefer to start from your database tables or from your classes? No problem. Telerik Open Access supports both forward and reverse mapping for six databases. Of course, you can enjoy link support, full Visual Studio integration, and advanced caching. With very little help from you, Telerik Open Access can quickly generate code as good as yours, minus the bugs. Tempted? Curious? Check it out today and download the free Open Access Express Edition at www.telerik.com. Well, what's interesting to me about this is that we, we're choosing those kinds of implementations further down the path. You've, you've defined these modules and, and sort of built the stories around them first. And then you're talking about, say, going into object orientation or talking about what APIs we want to expose. Uh, I, I'm thinking about some of the, the new concepts we're playing with, like functional programming. Maybe I'm not going to build objects with this. It's just going to be a set of functions. Or I'm, sure. or I'm thinking, you know, I hate to even say SOA because of the, the conflicts that generates, but I'm thinking about publicly exposed interfaces, or, you know, widely distributed systems. All that stuff comes after the stories and the definitions of the modules. Mm-hmm. It does. Now, you guys did a talk, you guys did an interview with Glenn Block yes, from the yeah. MEF team, mm-hmm. right? And he spoke about parts about in MEF. Yep. Um, and I, I can't remember what he called it, a registry or uh, some... It's called it a catalog, the catalog yeah. in MEF. So the parts that he's talking about, he says that you, you, you expose a part's behavior or contract uh, with an export. Right. And another part 
imports that export, and that's how they bind together to cooperate. Mm-hmm. So this is why MEF is exciting. MEF is exciting because it allows this, these, these business modules that you just wrote a story behind. It allows you to describe the contract behind it, and you can implement it in parts mm-hmm. with MEF which is really great because it then makes us a lot more agile, which breaks down this big design upfront problem. Right. Because now we have a runtime environment for modules, which we didn't have before. Well, and it should be noted that you don't need MEF to have contracts, and that's essentially what interfaces are. Yes, it is. It is. It is basically taking uh, interface-driven design to a level where you can say, you can you you can actually design or, or describe how you want something that uses one interface to interact with with another. Yes. So it's 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 going beyond just a developer sitting down and saying, "I wish I had the docs for this. I wish someone explained to me what the heck was going on with this interface." But at runtime, you can actually now say that I need this interface, and it goes to the catalog. And it finds it for you, and it binds to it, and it then continues, and you can then use it. Yeah. Right. So, so that's what that's what MEF gives us in terms of modules, which is really really nice. Right. Um, the one thing which I'm which I'm not too familiar with about MEF, and maybe I should pick it up with Glenn, is, is that in order to be really agile with modules. As you discover and understand a bit more about each module and its behavior and its contracts, you want to be able to refactor these modules. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, module refactoring is like trying to reconstruct a physical tree that you've cut some branches off. <laughs> you wish you had some parts out there that you just didn't cut off before. Right? right. And you want to put them back. It's, it's painful. It's, it's, it's notoriously painful. So the one way to address that is with versioning of modules. So you could have two modules that cooperate with each other, but they cooperate when they they adhere to a particular version that has been exposed, exported, which is a really interesting way of handling it because then you start talking about a little bit of backward compatibility. Right. One of one of the horror stories I like to talk about is, is that um, or describe is, is is that is that case of you 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 make some changes to your application or part that is being used by someone else, and you think you've you you think you've covered all consumers when you want to do the next release, right? Mm-hmm. Or people that are using your API, mm-hmm. and guaranteed there'll be someone out there who's going to come back and says. You know that deprecated method call? I wish it was still there. Mm. So it would be really nice if we could have two classes in the same runtime environment but with different versions and one didn't block the other. Yeah. So so that would be a really, really agile runtime environment. And, you know, versioning of components and happens all the time. This is just taking that to the to the interface level. Absolutely. Yeah. But how do you, how do you actually implement that? Do you, are you now just shifting the namespace to to keep the old version around? That's certainly how it has been done. I'm I'm not I'm not too sure about which is the best way to implement that. Right. Um, people have tried various different ways of of trying to handle 
backward compatibility. Yeah. But I think I think the work that has been coming out of the MEF team has been particularly exciting because they're addressing this whole issue of backward compatibility and extensibility, which I think are, are, are two ends of the same stick, basically. One extends in one, one direction, the other goes in the other direction. Every once in a while you come across a component where you have a, a, the name of a method with a number two appended to it, <laughs> and the, the original has been deprecated but it was there for backward compatibility. Exactly. And then the yes. number three for the next version, you know. Yes, yes. Well, someone has, has altered the, uh, the parameter list, you know, the signature of the method. Right. And, and, and you just wish it was, it was the same thing. Or you assumed it was still around, you know. Uh, so, the, so those are the little tricks that we've tried. But I think those are just fudges. We, we sure. just do it just to keep people happy and keep things happy, but it's not architecturally sound way of doing things. Yeah. You know, so you, you mentioned a little bit about, about SOA and service-oriented architecture, and this touches directly on that. It really, really does touch directly on that. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I like to talk about SOA, I asked people, I ran, the, I ran a workshop on SOA at Oradev when you guys were there. Mm-hmm. And right. I ask people to, to, to tell me what they understand about SOA. How do they understand it? Um, and it ranged. Every single person gave me a different answer in the workshop. From, oh, it's XML Health to its web services to I have no idea. So I've decided to call it some obscure architecture more than anything else. <laughs> That's the acronym? Some yeah, obscure architecture. Some obscure architecture, <laughs> SOA. Because nobody knows what's going on there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but when you start talking about modules at a business level, you're actually starting to break down the unorganization of problem space into into smaller pieces that describe a story in the business, and those stories are actually describing services. How does this business part of this business operate in isolation, and how does it interact with others? That's all it is. Now, aren't there elements in every application that are sort of trans-module? You know, they're, they're like pieces that every module might touch, and I'm thinking stuff like security, like reporting, stuff that doesn't naturally break into a single module. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Security is a perfect example of that. It'll, it'll touch on everything. Right. right. Okay. And uh, there could be other things. You might put in some tracing or performance uh, watches of, of sorts, you know. Right, the sort of that aspect-oriented kind of thing, goop that drops so, in from the top and touches everything. So that's a cross-cutting concern. So that starts talking about aspects, right, which cuts across class hierarchies, okay. Now there's, now there's going to be... Now I don't like to think about modules in terms of those infrastructural things, right, like uh, caching, right. Uh, security. I like to think of it at a business level. But, but there are business modules that could touch across many other modules. It could span across many things. Right? Um, and those things, again, uh, are ideal candidates for aspects to be applied in the business domain. Where traditionally, we've used aspects just to help our application work in a nice, clean way. So, it'll, so aspects are traditionally used for all the infrastructural things, caching, logging, security, 
previous value management, those types of things. But when we find that some parts of our domain touch one or more, then an aspect is the perfect candidate for that to model that part of your domain. So I like to think of aspects as uh, as as the last resort. It is like the coolest way to create a module, or, or, or it's, it's the Uber module tool. Mm, right. But I've always thought of aspects as something that came in in a later version of the product to overcome a design problem. It it can. And that's great when you, when you realize, as you mentioned right at the beginning, that we do prototypes and proof of concepts and we're too far down the line. We've already released code into production and suddenly we've, we've come across this, this light bulb moment. Right. And now we need to fix something, right? And one of the things that's really hard to fix, so whether you have a class hierarchy or you've got modules designed in a dependency tree, it's exactly the same concept. You're going to try to rip that apart. And that's really hard to rip apart. It's costly to do that. So one of the ways of fixing really ugly things is start tra- starting to introduce some aspects to model some of those things. Because you could actually uh, interact with existing class structures or module structures and introduce new behavior in those ways. So that's, I think aspects are a nice way to, to, to get yourself out of a tight squeeze. Although uh, part of me wonders if... if when you actually go to implement aspects, there's a certain level of dependency on the classes that you're coming down onto, that they need to be in a fairly good place for aspects to work properly with them. They, you know, their constructors need to be orderly. Like there's ways to build classes that would be highly resistant to aspect-oriented development. Well, with aspect-oriented development, uh, what, what do you want to do is firstly to start thinking in aspects, which is different from thinking in objects. Right, uh, because you're thinking at a slightly different level of abstraction about things that cut a, that is completely independent of other class hierarchies. So the the level of abstraction is slightly different. So you want to design your aspect to be independent or completely uncoupled from anything else. Yet on an existing system, you identify which parts that the aspect must attach itself to. So those are the joint points of the existing system. So you've got to look at your existing system and decide where you want to attach this new aspect behavior, the behavior that is sitting in this aspect. If we've taken sensible steps and, 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 and introduced interfaces in our, in our designs, then we should be looking at interfaces as exposing those joint points, those points where we want to introduce the aspect. If I could drag this back to, uh, back to the business realm for a second, yeah. I, I was enjoying your latest blog post in which you were talking about um, sitting down with a, a group and trying to talk out the business uh, the business model. And um, one of the words that somebody uses was one of those that it was a homonym for another word, and how easily oh, yeah. how easily it could have been confused. You tell that story. Oh yes, yes, yes. I was I was sitting down with a group of people that are in the diamond mining business, and. Um, and we had this conversation going, and we were talking about uh, about you know the economic pressures that are that are existing worldwide. You know, whether you want to call it a recession, whatever it is, but it's tough times. So I was asking them about so how are, how are diamond sales affected by this, and they were saying, well, it's a luxury good item, you know, and um, and uh, sales at particular sites uh, are showing these changes, you know. 
And we continued this discussion, and someone else said, yeah, and the site uh, in North America is, you know, has shown this type of growth in sales in diamonds or this decline or whatever it is. And the conversation continued along this way, and then I automatically assumed that site was S-I-T-E. As in locations. A a website. physical location. (laughs) I thought it was a site, like a location, you know, where you go to. Oh, right, right. right. Where the the diamonds are actually produced, you know, a mine or something like that, you know. So it's S-I-T-E. Yeah. It turns out that I was completely wrong because the site that they were talking about was S-I-G-H-T. And the guy explained it to me. He says, well, actually, when we talk about sites, it's about the place when a customer first sees a cut and polished diamond. And that is the site. It's the store, then. Or uh, it's just the event of actually seeing a stone. It is, it is the store. It is actually the store. It's completely got nothing to do with the diamonds are produced. And they, and they call it site, S-I-G-H-T, these sites. Huh. And Interesting. Ge- geographical areas. And I just sat back and I thought about it and I said, heck, you know, if I was designing around this, I would definitely have a class called S-I-T-E. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you would have shipped it long before anybody figured out that you, you know, got the <laughs> glossary wrong and you could never unship it. I would never have been able to unship it. Yeah, it's, it's so like, subtle. How do, you, how do you guard against that kind of error happening? Well, that's a kind of, you know... I would like to guard against it right, uh, right up front, which is why I want to write the story about, about the problem domain. Yeah, write it down. I want to write it down. Yeah. I want to write it down. I want to email it to someone and say, when we had this discussion, this, is this what you actually meant? Yeah. Right? And when he sees the words, then I can understand it. And he can understand it. And he can correct me and I can gain further understanding. So one of the things I... I I, I like to do when I want to understand a new domain, a problem space, is understand its vocabulary. If I can come up with a list of words, right, even if it's five or ten or twenty, if I can start making coherent, mm. sensible sentences with those words and people understand me, then I've got the domain sorted out. Then I actually do, I can actually go one step further and start creating classes and designing classes and applying patterns to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but until then, I'm going to struggle, you know, and I could make some really costly mistakes quite early on. Yeah, it is about being conversant in the language of that business. Uh, I, I, I pulled out the word glossary because that was always my reflex was to sort of build up a glossary of words that often are repurposed meaning. You know, you've always known this English word like site, S-I-G-H-T, yes. but in the diamond is business, it means something totally different. It's a unique yes. meaning. Absolutely. It is. You, you want to build up a glossary. You want to build up uh, some small list of words. Whether you want to attach a definition to it is completely up to you. You're going to start attaching a definition. It's going to become a dictionary of sorts. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea, right? Because it helps other people that are entering this team later on down the line to ramp up really quickly if they have this this kind of understanding. If they see this new new word, then they can just go up and do that. And wikis are great for doing that. It's absolutely oh, sure. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, so it's great to work with a team and some, some people in, you know, around a table, and you've got your wiki app, and you start talking with the wiki in front of you. 
and you can put. It doesn't. I, I don't. I don't like to get involved with really, really formal definitions and dictionary style. It just should be some words that people understand. Everybody should understand it in their team. Simple words, you know. But you, you know, we've started off this conversation with sort of getting away from the big design, sticking with agile methods, and and part of me has always felt that agile methods are all about coding sooner. To try and, uh, and, you know, people don't like it when developers sit and think rather than write code. Yes. Uh, but you seem to be pushing back on that somewhat, that there is some more, like, working on a wiki is not writing code. Mm-hmm. But it's important to, I think he's saying it's important to write it down, cause, uh, just so you don't, un, you don't misunderstand. Well, I think the wiki is code. Ah. I mean, that's what I was getting at, is this idea that there are other kinds of code. The, the way that, peop- that businesses use language is a code. Exactly. Now, take that one step further, right? Let's, 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 let's turn the knob up a bit. If I have it in a wiki, and it's in plain English, or whatever language you, you converse in, and everybody understands it, then I'm in a position to start creating some nice little domain-specific languages based on that. And that is when I can start writing code, real code. But as far as I'm concerned, the wiki is already code. It's just that we can't execute it yet. Right. And then there's the other job of turning that into, uh, into actual code. Are we still struggling with tools here? Is this really a tooling problem to some degree? Th- it varies from team to team based on the... the, the the degree of adoption of agility. I find that teams with, that are a lot more agile, who are prepared to do things in small little bits and pieces, and 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 prepared to throw things away, are very comfortable working with, with tools that give them high feedback. So you'd find a team that works with the wiki to be more agile than a team that works with a word document, right? And enterprise architects who like to draw visio diagrams, I find that to be a lot less agile. So you've got to find the tools that are a lot easier. What I use to draw little modules and diagrams, I use, I use a tablet attached, and I sketch it out. So I've, got, I've, got, I've got a data projector up on a screen. I've got my tablet next to me, attached to my notebook, and I can sketch. So I've got a sketch tool, right? And that image I can then put directly onto the wiki, and that's my document. And we understand it at that point in time and it's there forever. So do you use UML? To sketch that yes. out? Yes. When we want to describe uh, class diagrams, right, mm-hmm. and sequences, uh, state management, then I do drop into, into UML. But I'm not pedantic about it. Yeah. I yeah. think that if we get really caught up about UML correctness. Because you're, uh, you're not one of those guys who thinks that we should be able to convert our UML to code and run it, and vice versa. Ah, oh, man, you know... That's a, I fluctuate, but right now, in this point in time in my life, I am convinced that that is an absolute waste of time. I'm with you. I think that this is a we'd like it if it worked. When you spend more time trying to c- constrain yourself to the rules that make it work, just to appease the, the tool, that, mm. and then it becomes a waste of time. Well, you know what really gets me is sitting with this clunky form to fill in attributes for a class and every little tiny detail about that, that attribute 
What's its type? What's the cardinality between this and that? Yeah. You know, and all I want to do is put something visual up, and the tools prevent me from doing it. Right, and you might as well just write code. <laughs> I might as well write code. I might as well write a class and put it up. Put some attributes on there. You're right. Put some comments in it. <laughs> absolutely, you know. So I'd rather have a wiki and, and write a skeleton of a class on the wiki or do a sketch tool and plunk that image onto the wiki than, than to sit and try to create the, you know, the grandest UML diagram in, in, a, in a case tool or Visio or something like that. I've just seen far too many people waste an enormous amount of time making sure the lines don't overlap yeah. and the colors are absolutely right. Yeah. And uh, the next person that joins the team has no idea what the color coding scheme is anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so yeah. we have these glorious colors all over these. Who did all this? Right? Oh, that was Bob. He likes to draw little shapes. <laughs> I've, I've da- I remember being in a meeting one time where where a group of guys were arguing over the design of a converter, and there's one guy sitting at the end of the table typing away on a laptop during the whole thing. And about an hour into the meeting, he pops out a, a, a USB key and says, "Okay, I finished coding it now. You guys can stop arguing." Right. <laughs> That's right. That was that. That sounds like me. That sounds like something I would do. Well, there's a problem where you've actually, you know, you've actually got to the point of nailing down the scope enough and you're too busy arguing the language around right. how we should do something exactly. that you could just do it. Yeah. And, and oddly enough, running code tends to trump most debate. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you see, I, I don't mind if we're sitting in a completely technical team and I've got my wiki app or an editor app and I'm putting class skeletons down and everybody else is technically conversant. They understand what I mean by that. Right. But if there's a lot of noise around it, then it be, you know, syntactical noise around it, then it becomes difficult for the other person who's there to contribute towards understanding the domain, the, the domain expert or the end user or someone in that, on that side of the business, the non-technical person. You don't want to lose the attention at that point in time. So, but at the same time, we want to make sure that everybody understands that everybody grokks this little problem that we're trying to solve. And and that's when it that's when we start looking at what what excites me is that we start using um, some of the dynamic languages because they just have a little less noise attached to it. It's a little bit easier to describe some of these things. Do you see domain languages as really helping the domain experts speak to the developer? Oh yes, one of the things. I mean, if you look at if you look at the very traditional team composition. There's a business analyst of sorts always sitting in a team or attached to a team. And, and in formal team structures, you have, you know, a team lead and an architect and a few developers and a business analyst and systems and a very traditional way of, of structuring a team. But they still exist out there. A lot of the organizations still have it. Sure. Why I like to break that down is that I like to pair with that business analyst. I like to pair with the domain expert. So you come with me. We've had this nice little meeting. We've discussed it. Understand a little bit of your world. Now let's sit down together, right? And I'll sit down with an editor in a dynamic language, you know, Ruby or Python or something. And, and we start putting some things down. And the moment I realize the person is losing what I'm doing, then maybe my code is not as readable as it should be. Aslam, before we, before, we get, uh, before we wrap up, I want you to tell us a little bit about your thoughts on uh, software as a service, and I know you have mixed feelings about it. Software as a service, 
I think I think software as a service is is changing the way we um, we we software development houses and shops, whether they're part of a large organization or they or they're writing custom software to be sold. I think it's changing the way they need to think about it, about how they produce software. I think it's going to take people who are really good developers at a class level who understand how to write classes and and put them together. You're going to expect them to move one notch up or maybe several notches up to be able to design really, really good APIs. So they're changing from class coders to API coders, and I think there's a big difference in that. So you're kind of creating this these tiny little frameworks or large frameworks that expose the entire software, your entire offering. Um, and then you're also going to move your mindset over from what they call single-tenant uh, occupation of your service or your, or your software to multiple tenants. So are you going to run uh, many clients against this one installation or are you going to run one client per installation. And the one client per installation was the whole application service provider model. And we know that doesn't work. It just doesn't scale anymore. Oh, it never scaled in the first place. <laughs> yeah. So, so software as a service is changing that. But I think we're in a good position. The people that have done uh, web application development understand this business of statelessness very, very well. And so I think those those people will be in a position to design or write better software that can be exposed as pure services and can run with multiple tenants attached to it. Well, for the most part, we're seeing software as a service delivered over the Internet, so it tends to be webby anyway. And, and pretty much all this cloud computing stuff ties into the same equation, right? It does. It does. I mean, it's, 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 it's taking what you're offering and, and, and make it more pervasive in, in many different ways, you know. But when I talk about an API, I'm not, talk, I'm not just talking about an interface at a class level. You could have a REST-based protocol designed for your application, and that's your API. You're exposing your entire application using various REST-based uh, protocols, and that's your API, and I think that will change the way we, we, we think and offer our software. So when it comes to cloud and those types of areas, it's about exposing your application in a more pervasive way to make it easier to, to plug into them, right? which comes back to the whole module stuff. So I want to expose a particular module. How do I do that? I need a runtime environment to do that. I need a build time environment to do that. I need a design time environment to do that. So it all ties up at the end of the day. And so we'll move eventually into this perpetual beta, or as the Americans would say, beta, right? <laughs> beta. So we'll have a beta? Yeah. I'll be American. So it'll be a perpetual beta for your software, and then you're going to have shorter release cycles for, in order for that to happen. And in order for shorter release cycles to happen, you've got to be a lot more agile. You've got to be, find a better way of uh, managing what you roll out and put into production. And so it all has this, this, this notion of all tying up together at various points. So versioning comes into play, backward compatibility, extensibility, a runtime environment that is aware of all other parts 
right, or components or modules. Right. In the Java world, they call it uh, bundles in the OSGI environment. Mm. So it all eventually does come together to produce software that is agile at a runtime environment. And I think when we achieve software that is agile at a runtime environment, I think we're very close to the holy grail. Aslam, we're just about out of time. Is there any last-minute words uh, that you want to... Any last-minute things you want to say? Shout-outs? Hi, Mom? Anything? Calls to action? No, all, I can, all I'd like to say is thank you very much to the both of you. It's been a, it's been a very interesting discussion. I hope, to, I hope there's something here that uh, others will learn from and take, take uh, into their business. And um, it's a real pity that I didn't get to meet you in real life in Oradeh. I think we must have passed each other 20 times. Yeah, we might have, yes. We might have, we might have. So if you're going to go to Oradeh next year, which I thought was a really great conference, then maybe we'll see each other again or even sooner. I think we shall. Thanks, Aslan. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a